Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 7, Light and Shadows, is over. But we're just getting started here on post-show recaps. And we have the most exciting time podcast for you. Because I'm given to understand if you put the word time in front of anything, it makes it better. My name is Jessica Leese, and with me, as always, is Mr. Mike Bloom. I'm so happy to be here, Jess. I feel like I am... One with Spock, considering that he was found spouting a bunch of nonsense in this episode, and that is what I frequently do on a daily basis. So I, the Katra is already there. I mind melted with him without even knowing it. Yep. I When we turned on the Skype call to record this podcast, Mike was just sitting in the corner rattling off a bunch of numbers, and I couldn't tell for a minute if it was an homage to Lost, but... Here we are. Knowing me, it probably is. And to be fair, uh, this audio is probably remedied on the listeners. And uh, this is my entire audio backwards since I spoke it the wrong way around as we're recording this right now. Oh, right, right. So we had to fix that all in post. So here we are, Jess, finally. And I think that, you know, we were, we saw Spock and it was more than just the last five minutes of the episode. Yeah, I guess. Co- color me wrong. We got a lot of Spock this episode and he finally showed up and he was certainly here. Yeah, and I, I mean, albeit in a very different structure, I would not say that we talked to Spock, or with him, I should say, in that he didn't necessarily hold a conversation. He was more so, you know, us listening for context clues, but at least we finally got to see the bearded hipster Spock that we have seen from the very beginning of the season two trailer with Ethan Peck. Wait, homeless Spock, not a good look. <laughs> look, considering the state of mind that he's in, I guess the beard informs it, considering that He's also escaped from an asylum. Like, I don't know if the beard is something he's been rocking on the Enterprise or if this is like the depraved. I've driven myself mad. And so personal grooming is not at the forefront of my consciousness. He could be goatee Spock. Yeah. That, I mean, I bet it could be like, do you think he's covering up a goatee? It could be. It could be like he's mirror universe Spock and he's just got the goatee going on. Yeah, I mean, listen, Lorca was able to disguise himself as his mirror universe counterpart or vice versa uh, just because he didn't have any distinctive facial hair. Maybe it's just because Spock came in with the goatee. He said, well, I'm going to grow out the full beard and say it's a look I'm working on. And in this, you know, 21st century base take on Star Trek, they're cool with it. Well, here's the question, Mike. If you suddenly find yourself in a mirror universe, and you need to pass yourself off as your counterpart, does it behoove you to fake a psychotic break and just, like, huddle in the corner, rattling off numbers, and make people think that you've gone mad, rather than having to answer for anything in your life that you might not know about in the mirror universe? Well, that's a good question. I mean, Giorgio definitely took the latter approach, and I think she lucked out in that. Luckily, it seems like, outside of the, you know, uh, rampant dictatorship there are pretty similar tracks that the Giorgios have been running on. Uh, I don't know if we'll find a mirror Spock. I still think there's a theory out there that the Red Angel is some sort of mirror Spock or future Spock, as it were. And that's why he was able to maintain such a close connection. But I guess, yeah, it would be a good sort of uh, pleading insanity would be a good way to get out of any sort of information you may be tried about. Yeah, and now in fairness, I don't actually think this is mirror Spock, and I don't think he's actually covering up for anything. I think what we're given here of Spock is pretty much on its face what we can accept is going on here. But I have a really hot take about this, and I I do encourage you all to at me about this. What is it? Here we go. This is going to be a very deeply unpopular opinion. I don't think Spock belongs on this show at all. I think the I think Star Trek Discovery would be so much better if Michael Burnham's backstory was just that she was raised by some random Vulcans that we don't even know. Give this story to some random dude who is not Spock because we are packing so much into this character that we all, presumably if we are Trekkies coming into this series, we know Spock pretty well already. And to ask us to absorb all of this additional information about Spock and reconcile it with the Spock we've seen across the decades is a big ask. And I think it takes me out of this story quite a lot to have to think about Spock as undergoing a psychotic break and having this story with this adopted sister that we've never met. And it's it's just, it's really a lot. And Star Trek Discovery was doing fine on its own, on its own without Spock. I mean, 
I don't think that's an out of control take. You're not in the aperture of the take time rift, as it were, because <laughs> I I do agree with you there. I think that, and this is a point that I know David Bloomberg this week particularly took umbrage with, uh, particularly with the revelation that Leland, the sinister sort of uh, head of the branch of Section 31 that George O is working in, was quote unquote responsible for Burnham's parents' death, uh, you know, with the Klingons and everything. I, it feels like sometimes this particular show gets a bit too cute when it comes to connections. And I mean, I'm personally sort of deaf to it because I come from covering a show like Once Upon a Time where literally everyone is related to everybody else and everything has meaning. But I can absolutely understand how it's almost, I want to say extraneous, but I don't know if it's necessary to have, you know, oh, this person has an anchor, you know, is connected to this other situation and this random tertiary character is either related to this other character or they impacted their life in a personal way. You know, it really does feel like maybe it embodies this this spirit that everything is connected. But I mean, I think Star Trek Discovery is handling a really hot potato here in that you're bringing on an iconic character like Spock. And yes, he is in a very different mental state. And I do commend them for giving a different approach to Spock. At the same time, at least in this initial iteration, I do agree. It's it's still, as much as we're, we're trying to fit this on as a legitimate installment of the franchise, it's still a little odd to see, you know, Spock come over. I feel like Pike was fine because he was such a small part of the original series, but considering how magnanimous Spock was for not only the original series, but the franchise at large, it's going to take a bit of time, at least in my opinion, for me to get used to not only Ethan Peck, but the concept of Spock existing on a show like Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, it, it's really, I think it's a big ask of the fan base. And it reminds me of nothing so much as, and Mike, I'm going to betray myself as an even bigger nerd than you at this juncture. But back in the day when I was in college, I used to play a lot of play-by-email role-playing games. Ooh. Um, which we basically, we would be a Star Trek ship. Everybody had a role, and then we would take turns writing episodes with each other's characters. And a good character was someone who was basically, like you gave him a couple of interesting details, and you gave him some good faults. And then you let him bump up against other people that had some kind of well-defined faults. But there was always that one person who would come onto the ship and sign on, and the character would be like, I'm a quarter Romulan and a quarter Vulcan and half Klingon. And my best friend growing up was Spock. And I hung out with Kirk at the Academy. We were roommates. And I was in love with Dr. McCoy or something like that. And the person that would insert themselves as a Mary Sue character. And I had to define Mary Sue to Rob. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about here. No, I have read uh, I've read social media in the new age of Star Wars movies, so I become very familiar with what a Mary Sue is. Yeah. So I feel like you really kind of walk this very fine line whenever you put one of these beloved characters into your franchise. You walk this very fine line where. You have to be very careful with how much of that universe and how much you're going to build on that because it really takes people out of the story that you're trying to tell if you have to buy that Spock is such an integral part of this universe. First off, that sounds amazing. It combines D&D with Star Trek. It combines D&D with Star Trek, and that just sounds incredible. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it is sort of like... It's it's almost like a Forrest Gump being around for all those major historical events. You know, it's it's an odd retrofitting that in that case was done for comedy. But here it's really for narrative potential. And obviously that's going to have large implications as to, you know, if uh, at least what Peck told me is that he's his Spock directly segues into Nimoy Spock. And that's going to bring up further questions as to how, you know, he's going to get the way he does and why he never talks about Michael Burnham hereafter. Because we obviously know that Spock's going to live, but their relationship may not. I guess if you take him just as a separate character, we don't know that much about Spock. I do see your point that it could have been interesting if it was just a normal guy. Michael Burnham's brother happened to not be Spock, but just happened to be a normal human 
who is undergoing these problems. I feel like that would have been just as interesting, if not more, because then the fan base would not have to walk in with certain assumptions and expectations about this character. Yeah, yeah. Or even even make him a Vulcan. Like, if you want to explore that Vulcan stuff, because I think some of the Vulcan stuff was very powerful, and certainly... Those exterior shots of Vulcan are spectacular. Oh, that was those were so cool. And I loved like Vulcan's not necessarily it's known as more of an arid climate. So I love just the thunderstorms, the small touches of that. I mean, again, it just speaks to as we talked about this last week, how much the show is able to benefit from the time we live in where you can get a lot of great effects with essentially, you know, a snap of your fingers. And I'm glad they were able to take advantage of that. It also feels nice because say what you want to about the last couple episodes, but this really feels like even though Michael went on a separate mission, this feels like, again, hearkening back to the Trek we know and love in terms of like touching down on a planet, going meeting other species. That that really feels like something that, while it's been great the past couple of episodes, feels like it's been missing. Yeah, well, in fairness, Mike, every every original series location pretty much looks like a desert in Southern California for some reason. That's true, and that's how they opened, right? Was a... Uh, her and George O making the big Starfleet insignia in the sand. Yeah, pretty much. It's true. I mean, look, may- maybe they'll expand from here and go into a different climate. But I don't know. I'm always a fan of exploring these these alien habitats. And again, even though it's Vulcan, it's a place that we know. I don't know. I, I thought it was interesting and obviously symbolic that in order to find her brother, she had to go back home. And her, you know, the I guess in terms of this timeline. So Amanda finds out in episode three that Spock has broken out of the mental facility. I guess we'll find this out in future episodes, but do we think when she says to Michael, you know, I'll find him myself. Do we, what do we think happened between then and when they, when Michael finds him in this crypt in the middle of Vulcan? Um, well, do we think that Amanda maybe already knew where he was at that point? (laughs) Yes. That's what I was. That's the theory. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. Uh, if so, she's fantastic. She put in a hell of a performance, if that's the case for saying, oh, my God, this is brand new information to me. But I could imagine him, you know, make in his weird adult state, making his way back home. And obviously her being at odds with Sarek, we see it in this episode where it's clear that her she has become frustrated with the way that her relationship with Sarek has gone in terms of withholding information that she's going to in turn withhold information from him and keep his son basically in a in a cell that's uh, blocked off any sort of geolocating mental power so that nobody can find him. Well, I thought this is a fascinating look at a relationship that I would love to see more of. I think Sarah and Amanda is an amazing character study. When you really think about, like, how did these people get together and how have they managed to make it work for this long? It really boggles the mind. It's a good point. And yeah, I mean, Amanda sort of brings up the dynamic this episode with reminding him essentially that as angry as he or as frustrated as he may be with her corrupting him with her, his human ideals when he wants to raise him a Vulcan. She's the one who sacrificed a much more of a portion of her life to move to this distant planet and get herself immersed in this distinct regimented culture. And I loved Amanda standing up for himself. I love this take on Amanda Grayson. I think this might i mean i can't really think of many uh high bar comparisons to make to it but this is definitely my favorite my different uh rendition of her so far and i i would raise her to say is this the most we probably have seen of her as a character in general yeah i mean she usually whenever we see her we see her in terms of like who she is to spock and we never see like who she might have been before that or how she got to that point and here, we're really digging into it, and I think it's fantastic. I mean, we don't have a lot to compare it to, like, what well, we got Winota Ryder, we got original series. Mm, yeah, that's true. Again, like, not not a lot to uh, to power rank there. Were you excited to see the the flashbacks make their return? I guess it makes sense, because we were going back to Vulcan, but I'm happy this, this poor little kid Spock actor finally got something to say after he was completely silent in his opening episode. Yeah, I don't know how much little kid Spock I really need. But I did love the I did love the Vulcan wig on little kid Burnham. I know poor Burnham, though. She came in with such luscious locks. And I guess it's a good symbol of the fact of how much she had to essentially tamper down of her own human persona to become Vulcan complete with the dorky bowl cut. 
Uh, I'm happy she was able to let it grow out at least a little bit once she entered Starfleet. I feel like being on Vulcan is just like your entire childhood is an awkward phase. It really is, because you're essentially being raised this entire time of don't express yourself. You think of everything logically. Essentially, don't be a kid. You, you, you're, all Vulcan children are supposed to come out of the womb 40. I think is basically what Sarek is trying to instill upon Spock. Right, and I still don't get this. I don't get Sarek's motivations in adopting Burnham in the first place when he apparently spent his whole life trying to make Spock the most Vulcaniest Vulcan, the like Ur Vulcan. And so to kind of get him to ignore the entire half of himself that's not Vulcan, he's going to bring in a human and let his, let him live alongside a human. That really still doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, considering that he told Michael Oi wanted him to learn empathy. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't you know. know. Yeah, because I don't know if like emotional intelligence, I don't know, maybe that was one thing that Amanda was able to, he was able to let Amanda, you know, uh, allow in their agreement, their verbal agreement that they made about the, the way to raise Spock, but clearly it did not work out. And it'll be interesting to see if and when Spock sort of comes out of his weird mental form, how exactly things are going to be. They're probably going to be awkward considering that Michael said she, they're basically an inconsolable right now so to have him sort of snap back into that reality is going to be a bit harsh well and again this is where none of this jives with the spock that we know and love like okay he was raised like we spent a lot of time in the original series sorting out this spock as half human and having these emotions that most vulcans don't have and having to struggle with them his whole life and now okay it turns out that the Spock that we saw in the original series is, yeah, this whole period where it entirely broke him and he never talks about that. That's really weird. Yeah, it does seem like, you know, Alex Kurtzman said that this season is going to be the unwritten chapter of Spock. And I wonder if it's like, you know, that uh, that lost sequel to uh, To Kill a Mockingbird that came out a few years uh. ago and people were like, oh, no, no, oh, this is great that we have it, but I don't know if we needed it. Yeah, I mean, if somebody comes out being a giant racist, I'm totally done. <laughs> Listen, again, Star Trek uh, boils down some essentials of society. We could see maybe their big disagreement was because uh, Spock was anti-human. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I mean, stranger things have happened. That's very true. Uh, and I guess we do get a bit of furthering with the Section 31 stuff as well. A little small, but the continuing of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Giorgio helping out Michael Burnham... I guess she said she's expecting something in return, but I really do think they're hammering home that she had such a close relationship with the Michael in the Mirror universe that it's, it's you know, imprinting on her right now with our prime universe, Michael. So here's something that bugged me, Mike, and I, I want to hear your take on this. Maybe maybe you understand it better than I do. How does Giorgio know Michael Burnham's entire backstory, including who is responsible for the death of her parents, if this is not the yeah, Giorgio a, a, from our universe? Yeah, it's a good question. Because, uh, I mean, uh, did Michael Burnham's parents die the exact same way in the Mirror Universe? My assumption is that when Giorgio got brought aboard to Section 31, she was granted access to confidential files since she worked for Starfleet Security. I think her borderline obsession with Michael Burnham at this point got her to look into the history. And perhaps when she saw the incident that occurred on, what was it, Mars, I think? Um, then she cross-pollinated that information maybe with what was going on with Leland, and that led things to happen. I think this is something that happened specifically in this universe and not in the Mirror universe. Otherwise, that would be completely coincidental that the same event happened to happen in both universes. Yeah, or what if, what if it only happened in the Mirror universe and Giorgio is telling all of this stuff, all these tales from the Mirror Universe, and Leland is being falsely accused. That'd be interesting. I mean, do you think then Leland would have said, no, I didn't do that? Because he seemed to say, you know, like, yeah, he, you know, it's not that Lady Doth protests too much. He just seemed to like sort of glibly stare at her. So I wonder if she did hit a nerve, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah, I, I think we're going to get more of that, but it's like, I just met Leland. I don't care about him yet. This seems like another big ask. Be like, oh, I have to, I have to feel like this means something that he's responsible for the deaths of her parents. Like, I don't know. He's just a guy. 
Well, I also wonder if that's just going to be motivation for, and I think Giorgio is going to use that as motivation to get Michael Burnham to kill Leland so that Giorgio can be head of Section 31, and they all go off into a spinoff. I was like, she just got hired. She's been working for them for like six months at this point, tops. You don't get to be CEO after you've worked there for six months. Yeah, she's walking around like she owns the place, and she's like staging breakouts. Like, she is taking full advantage of her reputation preceding her here. And it, it happens to be working because she has information to hold over the boss. But yeah, it's crazy to think that she's only been working there for nine months and she feels like she's the one controlling the ship. Yeah, it's like, go back to the mailroom, Giorgio. <laughs> yeah, this is like very how to succeed in business without really trying. She's basically conned her way into a top job and it might go all, you know, pear-shaped if they have a pirate-based sweepstakes contest and have a live <laughs> show around it. Wow, that, that's a reference I was not expecting to hear on a Star Trek podcast. Uh, listen, we're here to bridge all sorts of things. You know, we're talking about things that are 500 years in the future. I'm referencing things that are 50 years in the past. Time is a flat circle, apparently, according to Discovery. I guess so. So I guess that segues us pretty neatly into the other plot that's going on this episode. And that is a very bog-standard Star Trek plot of weird, timey-wimey stuff and... Two people go on the Edway mission who really don't like each other, and they find a greater understanding of each other when something threatens to kill them. Yeah, what did you think about this being, you know, a real centerpiece for the Pike-Tyler relationship, which had really, I feel like it boiled over in this episode, but basically has been building ever since Tyler stepped foot on the ship. Oh, I really did love the foreshadowing when he saw these, like, for lack of a better term, future echoes where you saw them pointing phasers at each other and you thought, oh, well, something's going to happen. They might kill each other. And then it turns out that he's actually going to save him. And then the future echoes you saw were a little distorted. I thought that was fun. And I thought that it was interesting to hear their very different takes on everything that was happening. Yeah. I mean, I think I personally thought that, you know, when we when he sees that future, which is a cool way to utilize, you know, this idea of, you know, the these time... I don't want to say like aphorisms, but sort of like echoes of the past and also of the future. I had a feeling that it was going to be a misunderstanding just because, again, if we're going by conventional Star Trek plot standards, they'll come back with a greater understanding of each other. And so you think, especially with the way Tyler was standing, especially if you rewatch it, he's like clutching at his neck. And you think he wouldn't necessarily do that either if he was like choking or if something was choking him that Pike would make that shot. But clearly, from Pike's perspective, he feels like something bad is going to happen, and it just it just adds upon the paranoia he feels against him, which he is more than vocal about. I was intrigued that when Pike agrees to, you know, pull up a card here and totally take it upon himself to fly this shuttlecraft into the time rift, Tyler just joined him without a word? Like, there was no dialogue exchange of how I'm coming to. He just got in the turbo lift with him, and it was just sort of a silent agreement that he would be coming with him. He called shotgun. <laughs> I guess that was it. Oh, darn it. I cannot. There's general order one, but then there's shotgun. That supersedes everything. It definitely does. Like, they had to bring in the prime directive after there were too many arguments over shotgun. <laughs> I guess that's true. But I, I guess at this point, I've been trying to think about what what Pike's depiction what Antimount's depiction reminds me of and i can't figure out in your opinion jess is he more kirk or picard to you he feels very kirky to me but he has the same disregard for the rules that picard did so coolly i agree with that i think he has the bravado of pike especially when it comes to like the witticisms and this even though i mentioned picard before this seems like a pike thing or, uh, it's obviously a Pike thing. This seems like a Kirk thing to the point of where in Next Generation, they lampshade like, hey, Captain's not going to go on away missions anymore because Kirk kept putting his life on the line going down to all yep. of these planets. Like, this is an era where it's still sort of the Wild West from that perspective. So it does still seem like Pike is someone who is, in this case, so daring and so simultaneously suicidal that he's like, all right, yeah, I'll throw myself out there. I'll drive the shuttlecraft and potentially risk getting lost into the, you know, getting compressed by the space-time continuum. Well, it's also not the first time we've seen him do that. He really wants to be in the middle of everything all the time. He's not really... He almost strikes me as it's sort of a Peter Principle thing, where I think he was probably in it for the thrill of the away missions and the 
getting to drive the shuttlecraft and getting to fight monsters. And then he got promoted to captain and it's like, oh, well, you're not supposed to do that anymore. And he's like, well, I don't care what I'm not supposed to do. I'm the captain. Yeah. And I mean, even in the rift, he's pulling off these risky measures that end up working, but essentially him saying, hey, we're going to poke a big hole in our gas tank to leave a trail so that people will eventually find us. Again, it works out well for them, but I mean, they were left out stranded in the middle of space for quite some time that almost put not only them at risk, but uh, poor Stamets at risk, too. Oh, well, Stamets brought that all on himself. I thought that was a little bit cute, too. The like, oh, well, the only reason that I can go out there and save them is because I have the tardigrade DNA and I'm special again. And it's like, okay, Stamets, you get to steer the ship when you go black alert. and You also get to do this. I guess it's good for many things. It's like it's kind of an it's kind of a little the superpower is just a little too super. I hope that he at least told Hugh what was going on, considering it's the potential of like, hey, I know we just got together, but BT dubs, I might get lost forever in a time rift because I have to go save the captain and Ash Tyler. Okay, bye. Uh, but I mean, I think it's a way to at least get him involved in the action of things, especially since we have literally closed the door on the spore drive for now. I don't know. It makes me just recall uh, music to make the magic to make the sanest man go mad, uh, which is probably one of my favorite episodes of Discovery so far that just depends on his tardigrade DNA. It is a little deus ex machina that he can, you know, ignore all these things, but it's a way to keep him in the plot. So I can't complain too much. I guess so. But wouldn't it have been the cheapest thing ever if Stamets had gone out there and died right after they brought Hugh back? Mm, yeah, I mean, that would suck uh, just for a myriad of reasons. Anthony Rapp is great. And I feel like it would just be cruel for them to say, oh, this relationship will never be together. Apparently one will always be dead. Uh, and while the other will be alive, one another can live while the other survives. But I'm ha- I'm happy that he was able to make it back. And I, I was happy because it's fun to see Stamets out in the field. I think that's one of the disadvantages of uh, A, having such a big ensemble and B, spending a shorter amount of time, at least comparatively to other series on away missions, is that you can't really have Stamets interacting with that many alien cultures. He's always usually in the network or in that engineering room. So I I was happy to at least get him a bit of air to see him get some action in warping into this shuttlecraft, trying to pilot it back before creatures from the matrix attack it. Giant space squid, giant space squid, their own space squid, but just a little, a little bit more age, a little bit more guff to it. Yeah. Which is sort of a, sort of a shout out to V'ger. If you ask me, Mm, how so? Because you have this piece of their technology that got thrown out into the void and then hundreds of years later comes back changed. Oh, yeah, I could definitely see that. I guess on that note, it seems like Pike and Tyler are now simpatico in more ways than one. One of them is they feel like now the Red Angel is lethal. I wouldn't say lethal, I guess is violent, is attacking them instead of you know, bringing them to places where they can be benevolent. Are you on board with that theory after seeing what their probe did back to them? I don't know. I think I think we do get to a point where we're talking about, like, we're going to end up with, like, half the ship is, like, Red Angel good and half the ship is, like, Red Angel bad. And I think it's going to be, I think the end result is going to be Red Angel doesn't actually care about what's happening to these people. It just so happens that Red Angel has its own... It's own agenda and its own motives and everything that's happening with Discovery is incidental. Yeah, I mean, it could see. And again, this comes back to like the the faith discussion, right, of assigning meaning to events from a higher power that might just be random. But if you attribute a meaning to it, whether good or bad, that can inform the actions that you take. I don't think it's going to do well. The fact that now apparently they regard the Red Angel as an enemy, and now they are going to probably want to capture it and disarm it as soon as they see it, when maybe there are larger missions missions and issues in the universe (laughs) to take care of that might be spurned by the fact that now they believe that, you know, he is after nothing but to cause bad in the universe. So I, I am intrigued as to why the probe got sent back. I mean, it seems like it had to wire itself into the system to, you know, I guess Chekhov's uh, burgeoning of Arium's character in the past couple yeah. episodes was done for a reason because Arium has been infected. 
is are, are you on the same wavelength as me, Jess, in terms of that's the take you got from those three demonic dots that showed up on the screen? Yeah, she looked like a replicant for a minute there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess if we're going with her as the data analog, you can count on two hands the number of episodes where data got infected or got possessed by something because he's an android. So I guess, again, we don't know what Arium is, but she would be the conduit to go through to get into the ship. Yeah, I, I guess we need to know what Arium is before we can speculate on how exactly she was compromised. Yeah, that's true. Like, she could have just been hypnotized if she is humanoid, or maybe she was genuinely infected. Either way, whatever the Red Angel or something wanted to send into the past, it has now gotten in through her. So maybe if we won't see the Red Angel, its spirit will still be felt through someone on the ship in the next few episodes. Yo, it's... The Red Angel was already, we determined last episode that Red Angel was a humanoid in a biomechanical suit. What if Arium's the Red Angel? That would be random, but I'm kind of here for it and how random it is. Just because, like, this big character, this big mystery turns out to be a tertiary character from the future. (laughs) I I like it. I, I, as someone who's always been a fan of the tertiary characters, And as someone who was always flagging, what the hell is that thing on the bridge? I'm totally here for it if it turns out to be Arium. I mean, maybe Arium can become like the Ensign Row of Discovery, where like she just randomly starts becoming a big character. Maybe if other characters are leaving, she she could become a a larger part of it. But I don't know. I I still think it's a, a main character or one of the Iconians to your theory. But... Yeah, I don't I'm not entirely sure. It'd be interesting if if we have the Arium Angel thing going on. I mean, we're halfway through the season. So when do you think we're getting our Red Angel review by by what episode number? Final episode. You think that's going to be our big final? Because, I mean, Star Trek Discovery season one was not shy about making the revelations like in random episodes. You know, I'm pretty sure like the Lorca revelation came, what, three, four episodes before the end of the season? Yes, but we have been seeing a lot more traditional storytelling with arcs this season. I think we're not just dropping the reveals on people like Anvils. We took this many episodes to get to Spock. That's true. Exactly. They, they, they're really taking their time this season, which I've enjoyed more of the plotting out and getting to know these characters. I thought this was actually a really interesting episode for Pike in particular, and for this new form of Tyler, whether or not he's Ash Tyler or Voke, he's really trying to make this new identity, and he's pretty brazen as it is, especially under Section 31, where I think he does find community and does find power. But yeah, it seems like in terms of big reveals, we found Spock halfway through the season. It does seem like if this was like Disco Season 1, this would have ran in the fall and they would take a break like right here for the holiday season, you know, and then come back in February with the back seven. Right, right. And since we're getting it all at once and we're getting we're getting a lot of these multi-episode arcs where we're using we're using like the red dots as our kind of monster of the week situation, that doesn't feel as risky or unorthodox. And so I think we're going to stretch this out as long as possible. Speaking of, I guess, you know, going back to the Spock stuff for a second, when it comes to recharacterization, I, I don't want to forget about the reveal of the Latoctorai, I believe is the, is the term for it. essentially Vulcan dyslexia. Yeah. Vulcan dyslexia. And apparently it's very, very rare, but they have like a whole solution for it anyway. It's so interesting because I guess that is a way to sort of explain his social awkwardness as a child. But to your point before, he was in a weird situation to begin with. I feel like that could explain the awkwardness as it is, where you don't feel like you need to throw, you know, a learning condition on top of it. I do think it's interesting because I can't really think of many times when the franchise tackled a topic like this, which I feel like is prevalent in the youth community. But it's just it's just interesting that they choose that to really represent his solitude when he was a child rather than just saying like he was half human half Vulcan and his parents were trying to teach him different things that's enough to mess with a kid you don't need to necessarily throw dyslexia on top of it well sure and he didn't have a lot of friends because he was a half breed and they were all a bunch of racists that's the story we were given up to this point yeah 
And he also, the one person who was brought essentially to be his friend, purposely pushed him away as a child in order to protect him from these logic extremists, which I was a bit surprised that when, maybe it's because she was so secretive in her mission to Vulcan, she didn't really interact with people. I thought when we were going to Vulcan that the logic extremists would make an appearance because they were around even, you know, nine months ago, right? Wasn't it the logic extremist who was on the ship with Sarek who like tried to blow them up? And that was the whole Katra episode. Yep. Yep. So yeah, they're, they're around and certainly, certainly if we're throwing every piece of Vulcan trivia at the wall, we should throw that at the wall too. Yeah. I mean, it might still come. I want to see more Vulcan. I thought it was just a cool environment to, ex- to explode. And to your point, Maybe we don't necessarily see need to see that many connections back to the original series, but I'll admit it it does perk my pointed ears up a bit to have them give their take on Vulcan, give their take on Sarek, give their take on Spock, give their take on Pike, as it were. Maybe not leaning on it too much, but it, it was nice to see a return to Vulcan because we had only seen it in flashbacks up to that point. Well, and speaking of shout outs to the original series, did you catch where we're headed next? Yes, we are going to Talos 4, which I believe you did a great job of sort of recapping Pike's role in the original series. Was that not the planet that not only was part of the original premiere that became the cage, but was that not only the planet that Pike sort of subjected himself to in order to uh, stave away a death via radiation? Bingo. So now I guess the question is, have the events of the cage slash the menagerie part one taken place before the events of Discovery Season 2, or is this the first time Spock's going to tell us for? I believe this is the first time Spock's going to tell us for, but feel free to correct me on that. I don't think those events have happened yet. Because I thought it would be super interesting, because if you're wondering, like, hey, what's going to happen to this Discovery's depiction of Pike? It could be really interesting if they find that Burnham and Spock are there and they travel there and spot and Pike ends up going down there and something happens. And that's what puts him in the little roly dooly. Uh, I know that's <laughs> not exactly what happens in the original series, but it could be a way to sort of, I don't know, not necessarily write him off, but link him to the original series in a really meaningful way. Uh, and, and it would also bring some meaning of like, oh, my God, they're going to Talos Ford. This is what, you know, it's full of a bunch of people that want to mind control you and manipulate your environment. And I don't know if we'll uh, we'll probably see that, but I guess to your point, it might be the first time that Spock himself is exposed to it. Though again, I'm just talking myself in circles that if they had gone to Talos Four in the cage, wouldn't Spock have spoken about the fact that he had been there before? Well, exactly. And certainly, it's going to be interesting how much of that we get hints of. So I think this is going to be their first time there, and I think a lot of the diehards have to be sitting there thinking... Wow, these two characters are so inextricably tied to this location. They have to do something cool with it. Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine so. Well, especially considering that, again, these are the Telos 4 people are, I think are known for like mind control abilities. Maybe this is the thing that Spock needs to undergo to get himself righted normally, is to have someone essentially reach into the recesses of his mind and purposely pull out the normalcy and the sanity of Spock to get himself back in a place where he's not essentially being thrown back and forth between logic and emotion. So the Telosians are basically like really high quality therapists. It's like going to Betty Ford. Yeah, exactly. Like he, I, he's basically saying, Michael, can you drive me to rehab? Ha. Ah, they have to stage their little intervention and then he's going to get on the bus to rehab. Yes. And I guess it'll also be interesting as well because I guess I wonder if we're going to be done with this idea of mission of the week, which happened a couple times in the first half of this season, because if Michael Burnham's now sort of going to spend the second half of the season on the run with Spock, that sort of just stymies those ideas, right? The second half is pretty much going to be concentrated on Michael and Michael and Spock doing their thing. Maybe section 31's pursuing them because he escaped from them. Discovery's probably pursuing them because they say, Oh, well, Michael's with Spock and Pike still wants to get Spock back. It, it feels like that's going to be primarily concentrated around all that with maybe a couple of stuff thrown in there. The Arium stuff, maybe Tilly and Stamets get into more trouble. Who's to say? Yeah, I think so. I think we're kind of off of that idea that the red angel is going to direct us to do something. And we have a mission from the Red Angel because, again, like we said earlier, we've kind of concluded that the Red Angel may not have our best interests at heart. Mm. I mean, they. I think, you know, 
Pike said basically at the end of this episode, you know, we're always in a fight for the future and it ominous, ominously cut to Ariam. So maybe there is something about how there's going to be some infighting, maybe a discovery civil war about this Red Angel idea speaking towards the overarching religious aspects and how some faiths have, you know, been set up against each other for smaller quibbles. But I feel like there's still a lot to go, but maybe we're just reorienting the way that we're plotting things out because now it seems like there are several major pylons instead of us exploring the land beneath. We're more so focusing on those plot pylons and flying directly to them. That's such a elegantly constructed metaphor. Well, I was helped by last week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sure. There's one final thing I did want to touch on. Speaking of crossovers, I saw a lot of buzz on the interwebs about this, but do you think that any aspect of the time travelness of this episode was linked at all to Calypso? That's what we sort of talked about that last week, and it could be a thing. I was trying to remember because we were I we talked about this a bit online about when Calypso takes place. Uh, admittedly, when I talked with the uh, writer, Michael Chabon, he said that he just sort of like stumbled upon a round number of, I think, a thousand years in the future. I don't think he necessarily thought about the timeline, uh, sp- the timeline specifications behind that and what sort of ripples it may have. But considering that the probe is from, what, 500 years in the future, I don't know if that times out to necessarily the events of Calypso. But who knows? Maybe this is a, a younger Zora decides to to send herself or someone else back. I think I missed that that was Michael Chabon. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, and he's also writing for the uh, new Picard show, which also had some big news this week in that uh, the the director who was announced for the pilot episode, who has also worked on two episodes of Discovery, the first ever woman to direct a pilot episode of a Star Trek series, which is fan-freaking-tastic. That's great. I'm kind of hyped for this new Picard series, knowing all that. I am as well. And just because, again, you know, if you want something that is very much linked to the franchise as we know, I mean, obviously there's going to be references up the wazoo. I think Discovery, to the point that you made before, is still trying to straddle both sides of the river of new content and Easter eggs, especially with bringing Spock into everything. But there's a lot of exciting Star Trek news this week, especially we buried the lead totally. Star Trek Discovery renewed for season three. Woo! Which is super exciting. I really do feel like season two overall, even though this was not one of my favorite episodes of the season, I feel like season two has been super strong compared to season one. And I'm even a fan of season one. So I still enjoyed season one. I've been enjoying season two even more, especially getting to talk about it with you. So considering that I feel like Star Trek franchise series in general have a bit of a rough start and then really pick up, you know, season two is really like a bridge season. And then season three onwards is when things tend to pick up. That makes me even more excited for what's to come. So you're saying they're going to grow the beard next season. I think so. Uh, maybe Spock was sort of a symbol of that, that the writers were like, yeah, we're going to we're going to we're going to do some kooky stuff. We're all going to grow the beard. And so we might literally see next season. Everybody has beards because that's what the trend was in the late 23rd century. Wow. I'm, I'm definitely here for that. I want to see everybody with a different kind of beard. Like, let's get some ZZ Top in there. Let's get some like Van Dykes. I, yeah, I, I would want to see like, yeah, who's going to go with like the. Uh, the Amish, no mustache type of chin <laughs> beard. Who's going to who's going to go with like the braided beard? I feel like, uh, and, you know, the Klingons have started to grow their hair back out. I can. Ash Tyler's already got the game going, too. I wonder if he's uh, going to get some if they're given no rules in terms of facial <laughs> hair. He might have something down to the floor by the time season three comes around. Well, that's a good question. Like maybe. Maybe Starfleet has some regulations about it, but if you're Section 31, you're allowed to have a beard. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, My lovely wife, Angela Bloom, is perturbed by the length of Ash Tyler's beard. She really wants him to shave it. So I think she just every time she wants to look at him, unlike seeing uh, hatred in Tyler's eyes like Pike does, she instead just wants to take a razor to his face every time she sees him on screen. I mean, in fairness, it doesn't feel like a sartorial choice anymore, so much as a lack of caring. Yeah, that's true. Though, again, he he came, maybe it's sort of like the lone link back to his Klingonness, you know, letting his hair and his beard grow, of him saying, I had to leave 
in order to help Lorel. At the same time, I'm, I feel I'm still connected, even if the other Klingons don't feel like I'm connected. So I'm going to represent that. Or to your point, he might just say, hey, I'm, I'm just going to grow it out for a little bit and see how I look. Yeah, or he just like kind of stopped shaving and it's too much effort. Yeah, I mean, uh, no shave. I don't know. No shave century, maybe for Ash Tyler. <laughs> maybe. I do love that Ash Tyler's Klingonness comes to the surface at particular moments. Like I loved when he's swearing in Klingon when the probe attacks him. I thought that was very real and interesting. Yeah, I'm really intrigued. I'll admit I was a little cold on bringing back Ash Tyler as a character in season two. Not to disparage Shazad Latif's performance whatsoever, because especially knowing that he played Voke in season one, it's incredible what he's able to do. And he's such a nice guy. But I was sort of like, okay, I feel like we have closed the loop on Ash Tyler. But I think for what it's worth, he's brought a lot of dimensions to an extremely complicated character. And the situation that the writers have been putting him in makes things extremely interesting, considering he's now he's back with Discovery, but he's not really part of the crew. uh, And there's still people that are leery of him and he still has his own inner inner demons battling. I feel like you can do like an entire season about the ash tyler voke of it all on its own and then you incorporate everything else in there that could to your point be a lot of triggers that has him resorting back to things that despite him wanting to build a new personality he's still reaching into part recesses of his dual personas that you know he's trying to push down yeah he's a guy that doesn't fit in anywhere and i think that's an interesting person to follow especially with so many organizations and factions that we go between i feel like what discovery does really interestingly is that we have Discovery as sort of a home base, but we spend so much time with the Klingons and, you know, we spend so much time on Vulcan this episode. So it really does feel like we are building out a true ensemble, especially in season two of Discovery. And I feel like they've done a good job of saying there are so many communities out there and Ash Tyler belongs to none. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's such a great guy to have on board. I guess, you know, as we talked about, we're halfway through the season so far, Jess. I know I wax profane about it how much i enjoyed it what are your thoughts about season two of discovery so far now that we've officially reached like the halfway marker of it well the interesting thing is i think i'm kind of the opposite of you mike i felt like season one was so much bonkers weirdness with twist after twist and season two is just like pure universe fan service where we're just gonna throw all these pieces of lore from the original series it makes it i think Less of a piece of work on its own. Mm. And I kind of miss the crazy reveals and the fan theories that all turn out to be true. I feel like there might be a wild fan theory out there somewhere. I haven't heard anything about it. And I don't think anything like that is going to happen. We're not going to get that Lorca is mirror Lorca or that Ash Tyler is a Klingon. Those were so crazy. I wanted more craziness and it's just not, not quite crazy enough for me. If Arium turns out to be the Red Angel, would that satiate that part of you? It might. We got to see how that reveal gets revealed. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it all depends on the reveal of it as well. I I do see your point that I think Discovery really stepped out on the ledge there in the first season with declaring we're going to do things a bit different. I think maybe they responded to a bit of criticism behind that and decided to step back to more conservative Star Trek And that cuts both ways. I think that while it has provided for more solid storytelling that's anchored in what Star Trek is, it has sort of had them back away from some of that more riskiness. And hopefully they'll be able to, once they have control of the ship, they're going to be able to take more chances and tell more interesting stories. I mean, considering the expansion of the universe, with the short treks included, they have so many fantastic, unconventional ways that they can tell a story. I really hope they take advantage of that. Yeah, I think and I think they'll they kind of overcorrected a little bit this season. I think they're going to they're going to walk it back again for season three. And I think we're going to see some more bonkers stuff, maybe a little bit less conventionality. And that could lead us to some interesting places. And once we find a clear direction, like you said, this is about the time when they start to find that direction. I think we could go to some interesting places. Either way, I'm excited that there's more discovery to come, both, you know, watching it, writing about it, and especially getting to talk about it with you. It's a bright future ahead, and we're always fighting for the future. 
Certainly we are. Is there anything else you want to call out before we wrap things up? No, I mean, it's interesting in that this episode was simultaneously a clearing the table and then setting up the pieces again for the back half of the season. We moved all these characters into different states, different places. We made some big discoveries with Spock, you know, with if you want to call Leland's connection with Burnham, if you want to make, uh, you know, that that's a big revelation as well. But it really does feel like everything had been building towards finding Spock. Now that we have, we can move on to phase two. And I'm very intrigued to see what Talos 4 is going to provide and what everything else is going to provide when we're going to finally find out who this Red Angel is, what the seven bursts are, why they're connected, etc. It's coming. I can feel it. And I have no idea what I'm going to react to. So are you saying you can feel it coming in the air tonight? Absolutely. There's a drum solo in the background right now, percussively uh, you know, brimming my excitement uh, as I expectedly look forward to the next seven weeks. Yes, it's, it's all building to something. And so if you want to build some comments and some feedback for us, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can certainly go to postshowrecaps.com, find the thread for this episode, and leave us your comments. We love to hear from you. We want to hear, like... Are our bonkers theories too bonkers? Do you have an even more bonkers theory? Please correct us on all the little pieces of trivia that we invariably got wrong. We also like to be tweeted at. You can certainly tweet at me at Haymaker Hattie. You can tweet me at a Mike Bloom type. If you want to check out the coverage I'm doing for The Hollywood Reporter, you can go to THR.com slash Star Trek Discovery. Had a great time talking with Ethan Peck. Uh, before his actual visual debut on Star Trek Discovery, where he talked a bit about the audition process. Uh, obviously, he did not know that he was going out for spec Spock to begin with. He talked about some things that he gleaned from uh, his late grandfather, Gregory Peck, obviously of To Kill a Mockingbird fame. He talked about the opportunity to meet with the Nimoy family and talk with them about Leonard, which must have been an amazing experience. So he was a really cool person to talk to about everything ahead of his debut. And certainly more to come as the season continues to wend its way through the time rift of the next seven episodes. Can you give us a sneak preview of what you got coming up next week? Uh, it's it's tough to say. Uh, I'm looking down the pipeline and I'm trying to figure out what the what the probe is essentially going to do. But hopefully I'll be able to chat with uh, a couple of key cast members that are coming up for what action is to come. There's a it's, a it's an interesting episode next week, to say the least. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Thanks for your great work, as always, Mike. And we'll talk to you all next week. Special thanks to our friends over at True Car for sponsoring this episode of Post Show Recaps. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up your first date, that luxury package you got after that big promotion, or the mileage you save by riding your bike all summer long. Now, while you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it's time to sell it or trade it in. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation and moonroof. They will bump up your car's value high mileage you already knew it was going to cost you but now you can find out how much it's going to ding your wallet so you can plan ahead and once you're finished you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes which you could take to a local certified dealer so you could cash out or trade in so when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car check out true car today true cash offer not available in all areas